you know, no one organization can do it all. So if we can focus our impact where it makes the most sense for our organization and for our stakeholders, and we take the take the time and the care to get those stakeholders brought in and on board, um, I, you know, there's some real lasting change that can be made together. From Deergo Collective, this is Responsibly Different, sharing stories of certified B corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. This past fall, we had Eric Zimmerman from Trip Zero on the show talking about carbon offsets. The carbon projects and the folks that develop carbon offset projects are the real sort of heroes of this story. So the, the amount of energy and smart thinking and innovation that goes into these projects just it, it delights me every day. And in that conversation, Eric mentioned the company Native, which is a carbon offset company investing in helping to develop new projects and so much more. I wanted to learn more, and the more I asked around the local B Corp community, all roads seemed to lead to Native. They're based out of Burlington, Vermont, so it makes sense. We're based in in New England. So I sat down with a couple folks from Native to get the inside scoop on carbon offsets. Hi, I'm Claire Lefebvre. I use she, her, hers, and I'm a manager of client strategy at Native, but I actually kind of straddle two of our teams. So on the client strategy side, I work with companies to help them navigate the climate space and their climate goals and help find climate action projects that align with their business values. And then on the project development side, I work a little bit on developing new agricultural climate action projects. And I'm Emily Gaynor. I use she, her, uh, and I'm the director of people and culture at Native. Uh, so I work across our team to do, you know, all of the HR processes that you might expect from a director of people, as well uh, as, you know, work with our management team on our B Corps certification and some of our climate justice work. Can you share with us a little bit about the Native origin story and uh, kind of how y'all got started? Sure. So we were founded by four guys, uh, including our current legal counsel, Tom Stoddard. They were working at Green Mountain Power, an electric utility in Vermont in the 90s. And then the Green Mountain Power was bought by a larger company and they wanted all their employees to move to Texas. And our founders were like, we don't want to move to Texas. We want to stay in Vermont. So In 2001, they decided to launch their own business in Vermont focused on climate action. And they were all really excited about the developing renewable energy market, but they knew that renewable energy projects generally cost a lot lot more than new fossil fuel projects. And so they wanted to figure out how to fill that gap. And there was at that time, you know, a new commodity developing the renewable energy credit or REC. Um which was being used to kind of separate the electricity coming off of renewable energy power plants and the environmental benefit or claim or attribute associated with that energy. And companies could purchase those RECs to support the development of renewable energy and claim the purchase of renewable energy. So they started looking for community-based renewable energy projects that needed funding, and they started finding companies that were willing to pay up front for that stream of credits over the lifetime of the project. 
And then that upfront funding would help to cover that financial barrier of investing in the project. So in 2003, they got companies and individuals like Ben and & Jerry's and Cliff Bar and Indigo Girls to help fund the first Native American-owned wind turbine uh, with the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. And from there, the team grew and they continued to support community-based climate action projects. But as the renewable energy market developed, they realized, you know, there isn't as much need for this upfront carbon financing for these projects because these are now really working in the market on their own in most cases. So they started looking at other climate action projects like avoiding grassland conversion into cropping systems and clean water projects. And today, we're focused on scaling soil carbon projects, other nature-based projects, and technological solutions like organic waste management, um, manure management, and vehicle and transport innovation. That is so cool. That is really, really cool. <laughs> and, I, and I'm curious, too. So you mentioned RECs. W- what exactly is a, is a R- REC, yes. right? What exactly are RECs? So a REC is a renewable energy credit, and it is the environmental attribute associated with one megawatt hour of power. So companies, like all electricity plants, whether they're coming from fossil fuels or renewable energy, are producing electricity. But the way to differentiate a renewable energy plant is that it's also producing these renewable energy credits for this environmental attribute associated with those credits that companies can buy and then that allows them to claim that they are supporting and using renewable energy. When you, so you talked about kind of all these amazing projects that y'all are, are working on now. Are you serving primarily businesses or could your average consumer who you know just wants to offset their own carbon footprint come to you as well? Kind of who are you primarily serving or is it both? Yeah, we... We work with both and any individual can work with us. Either they can reach out to us to offset or they can even just go to our website and, you know, either use a calculator to to sort of um, measure or estimate their specific footprint and offset or just offset a certain number of tons, provide a certain number of support or amount of support for a project. But we mostly work with companies kind of from all sizes and sectors Um, A lot of great B Corps and direct-to-consumer brands from the apparel and food and beverage and beauty industries, as well as professional services. So it really spans the gamut. That's so cool. And and I feel like for me, and I I feel like this question comes up a lot for uh, our listeners too, kind of understanding, and it's a huge section of the uh, B Impact assessment is your impact on the environment, right? And there's understanding mm-hmm. scope. I think it's like scope one, two, and three, and mm-hmm. all of these things. And it almost—I mean—it gets to a point where it almost feels like, like, oh my gosh, this is like a whole other language. Like, what is going on? Could mm-hmm. um, maybe Emily, where you're more familiar with the the B impact assessment, speak a little bit to that environment section and maybe how, like, what are scopes one, two, and three, and and how? <laughs> What does all that mean? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is in some ways like another language. It's a lot of new vocabulary to learn. The environment section in the B Corps assessment measures your greenhouse gas emissions as well as things like your water use and what your 
your office building, you know, how your office building is um, using energy and how you are traveling and, you know, are you offsetting that travel? Um, it even looks at, you know, the environmental footprint of how of your office supplies. I think that Claire can speak the best to how scopes one, two, and three are defined. Uh, so I will turn that to her. Claire, could you tell us uh, how we would define scopes one, two, and three? Sure. So scope one is your emissions that are directly under your control so and that are owned. So any emissions associated with your owned offices, facilities, or vehicles, or manufacturing plants. Scope two is any electricity that or energy or heating that you buy, but it's you know produced outside of your specific owned facility. So that would be like your rented office uh, electricity. And then scope three is everything else. So it's all your upstream and downstream emissions. So, you know, for a consumer product company, a big part of that is their purchased goods and services, like the actual emissions associated with producing the oats or the fruits and vegetables or the meat that go into their product. But, you know, it also has to do with business travel and distribution of your product and actually on the other side, the use of the sold product. So, for example, if you are selling jeans, the use of the sold product includes washing those jeans and there's electricity impact associated with that. So you can imagine that all of that's really hard to measure and quantify. And I think that one thing that the B Corp assessment does in that environmental section is sort of help you understand exactly what within those three scopes you should be quantifying and measuring over time. That makes sense. And I noticed, Claire, you you mentioned that in scope one, if I'm recalling correctly, that it's all of your owned properties. If, if you're a renter, say, does, does, is it the same idea? Like, do all of those things still apply? Or is it really very intentionally, quote, owned? Yeah, if it's rented, then it would be scope two emissions. If, if there are emissions associated with a rented property or a rented um, vehicle or plant. So a lot of the companies we work with have very low or almost zero scope one emissions. That makes it so like us, like we rent office space and we don't produce a physical thing. So we're pretty much living all in scope two and three. Right. Is that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. got it? Correct. That makes sense. Uh, so what are certified car? Because I feel like also in this same conversation, people talk about carbon offsets and, you know, certified carbon offsets. And then also, and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of us, but using the gold standard, are those two things connected or, or, or what, what does all that mean? Yeah. So when we talk about carbon credits, we don't talk about certified as a term. When you talk about this language, we talk about validated and verified offsets. So we, all of the offsets that we develop are from projects that are validated by an internationally approved carbon standards body, which includes groups like Gold Standard and VERA and the Climate Action Reserve and a number of others. And so those bodies create these protocols that we then follow to develop new projects. And then a third party has to validate every project before it can start issuing credits 
to validate that it is following the protocol effectively. And then every verification period, which is sometimes every year, but sometimes a little bit longer than that, um, a third party is going back in to actually verify the issuance of a certain number of tons that have been quantified to have been produced, that meaning either reduced or removed or avoided in that period. And so once they're verified, they can be issued and then they're ready to be retired on behalf of project supporters. Yes. So I guess the other pieces of your question, there are some developing certification bodies out there, but they aren't certifying the projects. They're, they're often certifying a company for whether they are accurately measuring and offsetting their footprint and that those, and that those credits are effectively issued and retired on one of those carbon standard bodies registries. So you also asked about gold standards. So gold standard is one of those carbon standards and every carbon standard creates these protocols and then they also have a public registry where credits that are verified and issued are visible publicly and then when they're retired they're also visible publicly so you can go and check and see oh these credits were retired on my behalf and you know native you know we have our own account so we can go in and retire credits on behalf of other companies but companies can also create their own account and therefore, we could transfer credits to their account and they could retire them on their own behalf. Um, you just have to pay an annual fee. So a lot of companies don't do that themselves. Does that help answer your question? Are there other pieces to that? I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. That, that So essentially, if I'm understanding it right, when you contribute financially, you're essentially supporting the ability to offset carbon, whether it's through soil sequestration or some sort of project like that. And then, so when you purchase them, is that when those credits then get retired? Because you're like, okay, I bought that credit. Now no one else can buy that credit. Right. So Right. Because I feel like there's, I feel like there's a world where it, things could get super gray and murky and maybe not so great. Right. Or my Right. So, yeah. So there are two different ways, probably more, but two different ways I can explain for how this works. The traditional way is that you know, a project happens, credits are issued, and then companies buy those issued credits and they are retired on their behalf. But in, in that way, they're sort of backward purchasing from an intervention that has already occurred. Something that we do specifically at Native is what we call help build projects where companies can actually catalyze new action by forward purchasing tons from a project and then that funding goes to actually pay for that intervention, whether that's helping ranchers invest in infrastructure to adopt improved rotational grazing practices or helping smallholder farmers in Mexico afford a small-scale biodigester to avoid methane on their farm. So that upfront funding goes to help cover those things, and then the credits are issued and retired on behalf of that company or individual supporter during that help build period, which is often five to seven years, but could be up to 20. And we commit in our contract to retire those credits on your behalf as they are created. That's so cool. And I, I think that's one of the things that I found so excited and was so impressed by when we talked uh, the first time uh, was these help build projects. And it makes so much sense that 
a lot of them wouldn't be possible, right? Like if everybody was like, oh, I'm just going to buy certified credits. I know it's like one and done. While that's better than doing nothing, right? Like there's so much opportunity to be improving and those opportunities don't happen unless people fund them, mm-hmm. right? Yes, exactly. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the your, your help build projects. How do you find them and, and what is the impact of supporting supporting the, the help build projects? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I was saying, I think it's really an opportunity to catalyze something new that wouldn't otherwise happen. There's just this really high level of additionality in these projects. Speaking about our agriculture projects specifically, what it allows is for rather than like a lot of these mechanisms will say, okay, farmer, you make this change on your farm, you take this risk to do this new practice, to change things up, to invest in infrastructure, and then we'll come measure the outcome. And once you've accrued carbon or reduced carbon on your farm, then you'll get a payment for that outcome. But what our project allows is, well, actually, we know there's like, we, we want to share that risk with you. We want to help cushion that investment. So we're going to bring some of those, the, the payments for those credits up front to help cover that cost and actually help you take that leap where you might not have if you just had to rely on maybe getting an outcome payment in a few years. You know, those upfront payments also go to help cover the soil sampling and the education and training, really creating a holistic environment to help make these interventions actually lasting and permanent over time. So when companies make that upfront investment, they're helping invest in in creating that ecosystem of support. That's really cool. And how do you find these projects? Like, are they ideas that you all have and then you go out and manifest them? Or, or do you have like, like project radar where you're like, <laughs> like, I'm so curious. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's always different, right? So there, you know, we do, our project development team does just sort of have their feelers out to see where things might be possible. We also get a lot of, you know, incoming sort of incoming outreach around, hey, I want to try to make this project happen. Could you help me? So we get a lot of sort of leads on new projects that way. For the example of our Northern Great Plains Regenerative Grazing Project in Montana that I've been talking about, in that case, it was one of our project developer, Kirsten's moms, she lives in Montana and she, I think, volunteers with a local nonprofit called Western Sustainability Exchange that um, engages with ranchers in the region on conservation practices. And she was helping them. She was, I think she was volunteering to do GIS work with them. And she learned more about them and was like, Kirsten, I think this could be a great opportunity for a project. So she connected Kirsten. Kirsten sort of started to provide that carbon lens and they started to reach out to farmers or to ranchers and create this project. So sometimes it can be sort of really organic like that. Whereas sometimes We have a partner who, for example, with our Mexico Biodigesters project, there's a partner, Sistema Bio, that's, you know, already has these small-scale biodigesters. They already know growers that would benefit from them, um, but they're looking for upfront funding to help subsidize those biodigesters to make them affordable to, you know, really smallholder growers. Um, so they're reaching out to us saying we have this opportunity and then we're sort of doing the due diligence and building that relationship to make that project work. That's so cool. I, 
I have to ask, what is, do you have, I mean, maybe this is an unfair question, but do you have a favorite project or, or like a story that, or like a story of success that you'd want to share? What about you, Emily? I know mine. We do water projects and we have this, and Claire probably knows more about the specifics of the actual filter that these projects use, but the impact of these water projects is at the household level. And I just, I get really excited about these projects because we know that, you know, obviously something that is creating clean water for a full family is going to have all kinds of ripple effects, positive ripple effects throughout that family and their community. You know, perhaps that means that children are less sick and they can go to school more frequently or women have to walk, you know, women are people who are gathering water in the household have to walk shorter distances or not at all to, to have clean cooking water. And when I think about the work that we do uh, and having that type of impact with families all over the world, it's, um, it's really exciting. That's my, those are my favorite right now. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite ones right now are ones that I can't talk about yet <laughs> because they're in much earlier stages of development, uh, but they're really exciting. Uh, but my favorite project that we can talk about is the one I've been talking about the most, which is our Northern Great Plains Regenerative Grazing Project that helps ranchers adopt these improved rotational grazing practices and, you know, increase the productivity of their grasslands, you know, protect those grasslands, create more profitable and long-lasting businesses. And I think it's just, I think it's a really great application of our help build model. I think we've gotten a lot of great feedback from ranchers in the region and there's huge opportunity for expansion. So that makes me really excited about the future for the project. And there are, you know, incredible co-benefits of protecting these landscapes and livelihoods. Um, And I just think, you know, the world of soil carbon is complicated and messy, but I think we have a thoughtful, conservative approach to it. And so I'm just excited to see how it plays out. That's so cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you both for sharing those. Those are great. Uh, It's got to be really exciting to 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 be in that work. I imagine that's really cool. Yeah. And now kind of continuing on, I know that so when when people a a lot of times I feel like in in the business world start talking about carbon offsets and and all this, it's very much in conversation about being carbon neutral or carbon positive, or I'm sure there are more terms that I don't even know about. (laughs) Um, What do each of these mean and how much weight should consumers give them? Mm. Like if somebody says they're climate neutral, like what does that mean? And Mm -hmm. can it be, again, this is my, maybe I'm extra cynical today. I'm not sure, but (laughs) you know, can it be trusted, right? Like what what does it all mean? Yeah, so it is relatively straightforward, but I understand how confusing it is with all the different claims that are out there. Generally, climate neutral or carbon neutral means that you are measuring your carbon footprint and then netting out those emissions or balancing those emissions by buying offsets. One best practice with climate or carbon neutral is to clarify which scopes it's covering. Some companies just use carbon neutral to cover their business operations and others are going really deep into their scope three and others might be just covering 
little portions of their scope three. So that that makes a big difference, right, with what level of investment they're making. So I can get back to that. But so that's climate or carbon neutral. Climate positive generally just means you're doing the same thing, but you're netting or balancing out more than your emissions through the purchase of offsets. So you're purchasing more a larger number of tons of offsets than you've quantified as your footprint. And then net zero sort of originally kind of meant the same thing. Companies were using it in a similar way, but it's it's come to mean in, in <laughs> well, there's a new uh, science-based target initiative guidance um, and framework on net zero, and it requires companies to reduce their emissions aligned with a science-based target and then net out emissions once they've reached that point with removals or removal credits. So the, and that's a certain type of credit that is removing carbon dioxide equivalents from the atmosphere, either through technological means or in uh, soil or living biomass. The carbon neutral is something you can do right now. Whereas net zero should really be an aspirational goal of a place we're trying to get to. It's really about deep reductions and then removing those really hard to abate emissions. So, you know, the second part of your question, like, is this valid? Is this credible? I think it's a great step, right? It's something that companies can do right now. And, and, you know, Offsets are one of the most efficient ways, immediate ways, to take climate action, right? But it's not everything. If that's the only thing that they're doing and they're not talking about how they're reducing their footprint or investing or advocating for better climate policies, then it's definitely not enough and you should push them on it. I think it's also helpful to look into, well, what kinds of offsets are they purchasing? Are they just purchasing, you know, the cheapest offsets associated with practices that aren't really additional or are they supporting new are they taking risk on are they supporting innovation that really needs to happen to help build capacity for climate action so that's that's what i would say about that but happy to answer other questions and and i know too consumers now are so which is great super savvy to greenwashing right a little skeptical of some of the claims out there are there places where consumers can go to check out, you know, if somebody claims that they've done carbon offsets or is it really asking hard questions of businesses and, and going directly to them? That's a good question. Um, I think that there are a few initiatives in the works to sort of have more oversight and regulation of how of the claims companies are making and of, you know, the types of projects they're supporting, but those aren't fully developed yet. So I think pushing for that <laughs> is a great thing we can all do. Beyond that, I, I do appreciate that, you know, Climate Neutral is a certification that a, a couple companies we work with use just to demonstrate, okay, we really have offset our emissions. And what's cool with that is you can search the company online and it will share, well, this was our footprint and this is the type of offset that we did this year. And I think that type of transparency is is great, but it's also something companies can do themselves on their own website, right? And just make it really straightforward for, for consumers to understand. 
So it sounds like that climate neutral certification is m- maybe similar to B Corp certification, like as a, it's a third party that checks it all out and says, yep, you're doing the thing. Correct. Yes. They, they basically just say, okay, you've measured your emissions, you have a reduction plan, and you've offset this year. I'm curious to kind of digging a little deeper into that net zero, you were talking about reduction. Is it a straight across the board X percent reduction or is it really like by industry, by business? It's like, is it super nuanced or? So it it. It can be. So when, when for big corporations, it is super nuanced. They need to have really clear accounting of exactly where their emissions are. And then there are going to be sort of specific goals for how to align with the Paris Agreement based on their footprint. But generally, generally what science-based targets requires is a 50% reduction in all emissions by 2030 and an 80 to 95% emissions reduction by 2050. So it's pretty significant. And a lot of companies have set those goals, but the pathways to achieving them are still extremely murky. Wow, that's really cool. That, but that's, that's from a planet perspective, that's exciting. Right, though, right. right. Like that's, and I know you all are also a certified B Corp. I'm curious, how did, how did you all hear about B Corp and, and what... What motivated you to pursue certification? Yeah, so Native heard about the B Corps movement pretty much when it started, which I think was around 2007, 2008. So they, they knew about it. We knew about it when it launched. Um, our, our co-founders were aware and, you know, knew other, other companies that had joined onto that, but they initially were reluctant to to join uh, because, it you know, it was new and they weren't sure if it was legit. Uh, was this a fad of any kind? Would it go away in a few years? Or was this really a movement to make change in business? So, you know, they watched it for a while and then decided that that, that wasn't happening and this was a legitimate movement. Uh, so they, they took the plunge and took the B Corp impact assessment in 2015 for the first time. And that we got our first certification in 20, 2016. That's awesome. That's awesome. What would you say was the most challenging about your certification process and and how did you work through it? Yeah, I think that the B Corp impact assessment, I find it really interesting because there are a lot of different iterations and there have been a lot of different iterations, as you can imagine, since 2007. Our, with our initial certification, I think one of the more challenging things was that we were trying to understand what B-Lab, the nonprofit that certifies all B-Cores, was really trying to get at in the questions that they were asking. And we were trying to understand, you know, what information did we need to have in order to be able to answer those questions. So that was challenging with that initial certification. And I think, you know, one of the things today that that is challenging, but by no means prohibitive, is that it takes time. It's a very long, it can be a very long assessment, and it looks, you know, at all aspects of your business. So it's really not something that one person can usually take on themselves. And so that coordination can take a long time. And, you know, we just need to have that in mind when we go to recertify and New companies need to have that in mind when they go to certify for the first time. Yeah, that's super. I know it took us over a year just to work through the assessment. Yeah. 
what I, I, so do you all have like a internal team that works on it or do you spearhead that or, or what what is working through it look like yeah so we went through our recertification this past summer and it was um, myself and one of our co-founders Tom Stoddard who worked on it most closely but we worked with at least three or four other people across our teams to to get the information together that we need. And, you know, one part of the rigor of this assessment is that they ask for documentation. Um, so, you know, you can't just click a bubble and have your answer be all ready to go and accepted. You have to provide documentation for that answer. So, you know, it, it is definitely not a one-person job. Uh, what would you say has been kind of the most rewarding part of being a B Corp? One of... One of the things um, that we've done and is now required when you become a B Corp is to also become a public benefit corporation. So registering with your state to to be a public benefit corporation in addition to being a certified B Corp. So that becoming a public benefit corporation for Native allowed us to hold our investors accountable to real impact through our business. Uh, and that was a structure that, you know, we 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 didn't have in place at the time, at least. And it's something that we lean on now to keep our ourselves and our investors focused on the impact of our business. That's awesome. And and what advice would you have for for other folks that are pursuing certification or considering it? I think um, I would say to be really clear about your values and, and what those values are for your business and how you want to communicate those values through a B Corp certification. Obviously, you know, businesses impact more than the bottom line and um, the B Corp certification gives you an opportunity to, to highlight that and to really focus where you want your impact to be. I think one thing that is great for businesses that are interested in getting certified to do initially is to just take a stab at that B Corp impact assessment just as a trial, not having to answer all the questions, but to have an understanding, a deeper understanding of what types of questions are being asked and where you might need to have systems in place to gather information that you know you might not have currently. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice for sure. I noticed too that you were a best for the world honoree in 2019 in the category of best for governance. Uh, and so for listeners that are are maybe new to B Corp land, the assessment's broken into five and governance is one of them, um, kind of five categories, governance being one of them. W- would love to hear about some of the policies and practices that have helped you excel in, in the area of governance and how others might learn from, from your leadership there. Yeah. So we, like I keep, I keep saying impact, but we use the B Corps certification to really focus on our impact. And we try to extend this, this impact in our intentions with our impact into our governance. And so, you know, that we try to keep that centered as we're thinking through new policies or tweaking existing policies. So, you know, I don't know that we have any sort of magic bullet for other organizations out there. But we, we have a board of directors and this board of directors does annual reviews on our social and environmental performance. We have, you know, annual, annual reviews across our team that sort of help us stay true to that mission and, and our values. And like Claire was talking about before with our, the third party verifications that happen with our projects, we do have that external governance essentially of those projects to make sure that, that they're delivering on what we intend for them to deliver on. So, you know, I think when you can have eyeballs that are outside of your organization, you know, looking at the things that really determine and tell the story of your impact, I think that that is one way to be able to 
stay transparent in, in how your organization is governed and, and wants to wants to be governed. Any advice for folks on how to track their own carbon footprint? Because I know that's something that we, you know, it took us a lot kind of now. And I still don't know that we did. I, I There has to be more efficient way than the way we did it. Um, <laughs> like figuring out our own carbon footprint. Uh, but even just for individuals and or businesses, like any advice for how to figure all that out? Yeah, there are a lot of great online tools out there, whether that's, you know, specifically for travel or for an event. You know, we have some on our website, um, but they're on plenty of other websites as well. There's, if you want to get into scope three, and then it's really great to hire, you know, consulting, a carbon footprinting or life cycle assessment consulting firm to help you out with that if you want to get into the nitty gritty details let's see, like Qantas or Anthesis are examples of companies that do that. And what else? Oh, and then there, but if you don't have the budget to do that, there's a free scope three evaluator through Qantas. If you just search scope three evaluator, you can find that. And it's generally just by spend. So it's not super accurate, but it helps you get a ballpark on where your scope three emissions are. Um, But yeah, I think the most important thing is to start just creating an internal system for collecting that data. So figuring out what actually is the data that we need in order to, you know, multiply by an emissions factor to get to our numbers and then finding the internal systems for collecting that data. And like the earlier you can start doing that, I think the easier it is. That makes that makes a lot of sense for sure. I'm curious if you both get maybe common uh, questions or if there was anything that you wanted to like shout from the mountaintops, like dispel like a common misunderstanding, especially in the space that you work in about, you know, the environment and offsets and, and all of that. What would, what would that be? That's a good question. <laughs> a good question. <laughs> I can take this first, Claire. I'm curious what you would say, but one thing that I, I, it comes up a lot for me in conversations both at work and outside of work is that, you know, these are really, really urgent issues that we're dealing with and there's not a perfect solution for those issues. Climate change is impacting all, you know, all of us differently depending on geographies and race and class and, uh, you know, ability to impact that change. So I think that it's important to remember that taking an action that is thoughtful and has been considered with those stakeholders that will be impacted is, is important. And it might not be the perfect action, but it is something that needs to happen because this is such an urgent matter. So, you know, if um, maybe I, I stop buying plastic this week, but forget next week, the fact that I remembered one of two weeks is better than not remembering at all. Yeah, I think there there are two kind of things. One is I think, you know, there is a lot of, there's been a lot of really great and effective scrutiny of carbon offset projects and that needs to continue. But carbon offsets are a really great immediate effective opportunity to create change and to invest in change. And, you know, this group Rare out of D.C. came out with a report about the seven actions that individuals can take and prioritize them. And they said, you know, the top action an individual can take is purchasing carbon offsets. 
And I think, and, but in currently there are a lot of people that want to do something about climate change, but they, you know, don't, they feel helpless to do so. And there are a lot of great ways to get involved, but one that you can do immediately is, is supporting carbon offset projects, finding ones that are meaningful to you and supporting them. So there, there is a lot of good work happening there in this space. I guess, secondly, on the company side, I think often we get questions about like, oh, well, you know, how is this going to fit into this changing claims framework or how exactly will I account for this in my scope three? And I think, and sort of waiting to see where these accounting frameworks end up before investing in action. And I think just what's most important is as a company to figure out what powerful climate action means to you and then to start taking, forging a path towards action as quickly as possible and not letting claims or accounting frameworks get in the way of that action. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, can people gift carbon offsets? Is that that's a good question. I was just thinking, uh, you know, somebody's got a birthday yeah. coming up. Is it like, oh, hey, I, I offset your carbon footprint this year, you know? Like, I don't know. That's a great idea. That would be a cool product to have. A, you know, we, um, you certainly could do like go onto a project developer or a seller's website like ours and maybe – and do an assessment of what you imagine their carbon footprint is. And then you sort of get this receipt with information and you could share that with them, but it's not really designed nicely to be a birthday present. So it's a great idea. That's awesome. Any other parting thoughts or advice or, or words for listeners? I think I just shared what's, what's sort of most top of mind for me, but you know, we learn a lot from, talking to companies and individuals about what they're struggling with or succeeding with or trying to achieve. And so if anyone wants to reach out to have those conversations or continue this conversation in any way, they are welcome to. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage individuals and organizations to take the time and, and get the clarity that they, that they uh, need to move forward on where they want to focus their impact like I said, these are enormous and also very intricate problems and we, we can't do it all. You know, no one organization can do it all. So if we can focus our impact where it makes the most sense for our organization and for our stakeholders, and we take the, take the time and the care to get those stakeholders brought in and on board, um, I, you know, there's some real lasting change that can be made together. Before we created this episode, we worked with Native to calculate our carbon footprint and select a project that we wanted to support, and they made it super painless and really interesting. They have a bunch of projects up on their website that you can check out, and as always, I've got links to that in the show notes for you. I also found some really cool reports from Rare, which was that uh, source that Claire had mentioned earlier in our conversation, and you can find links to those in there as well. And I got to tell you, in all the different reports for Rare that I had read, one of the things they say individuals can do is to offset your own carbon footprint. 
So I was like, shoot, while I I was reading that and producing the show notes for this very episode, I went over to the native site, calculated my own carbon footprint, and bought offsets for all my activity for last year, all within 10 minutes. Now, I also feel like I should add that Native is certainly not paying me to say any of these things. I'm I'm more sharing this with all of you as an audience so that you don't feel daunted uh, by process. Because I know for me, sometimes process can get in the way. And it's like, oh, gosh, I don't even know where to begin. I'm just, you know, it can be a thing that's easily um, avoided because of process. So I just want to assure you all that, that it's actually quite simple and easy to navigate and easy to do. Should that be something that you want to do? And continuing on with those rare reports, the other really cool learn that I wanted to share with you all is that uh, in one of the reports, they outlined seven behaviors Americans can take to reduce their carbon footprint. Now, none of these are going to be shocking or news to anyone, but I'm going to read through them just for your reference. Uh, they include reducing air travel, purchase an electric vehicle, eat a plant-rich diet, offset your carbon footprint annually, reduce food waste, tend carbon-sequestering soil, and purchasing green energy. Now, this particular report came out in 2019 and references the Paris Climate Accord and the benchmarks that were set for 2025 and identifies the significant gap between where we as Americans are and where we should be in order to be in alignment with those goals. The report says, and I quote, Within the addressable market of potential adopters for each behavior, referencing those seven behaviors I just listed, Within the addressable market of potential adopters for each behavior, if adoption increases by 10%, it would reduce the gap by 80% to 0.12 gigatons. So every little bit does count and has a huge impact. So if we all do what we can and stretch and do a little bit more, the collective impact is huge. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for all the work that you are doing out in the universe. We're all in this together. Till next time, be responsibly different. This is a production of Deergo Collective. To learn more about Deergo Collective, head on over to deergocollective.com. That's D I R I G O collective.com. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Ben Marine. To learn more about Responsibly Different and discover all the other content we have for you, head on over to responsiblydifferent.com.